Welcome to the At His Feet Studies podcast. I'm Chris Gordon here with Hope Layton. We together make up At His Feet Studies, and this season we are doing a podcast on the Book of Lamentations. We would love for you to follow along with us. You can do that one or two ways. You can either just read along in your Bible, the Book of Lamentations, or we have a study on it if you would like to follow along in that, because we'll be referencing that. Either way, we're so glad you're here. Welcome back to the At His Feet Studies video teaching series and podcast limitations. We hope you've been reading through the study as well and listening to this city as she pours out her heart and laments for what she sees and all of the devastation around her that was a result of Judah's total disregard for God and ignoring his desires. It has been a heavy first couple of chapters, and today we've made it to a moment of light. Yes, today, Yay, finally, we're going to get to the part of Lamentations that is on all the coffee mugs <laughs> and is familiar to most people, but that's, but we're not going to let you get there quite yet. First, Hope, let's talk about the shift that's happened. Chapters one and two were the city talking, but who's talking now? So now it's the man. This is a person who, from what we understand, was a faithful individual a worshiper of God who was living in Jerusalem at the time of the siege and in the destruction and got caught up in the fray. And he is describing in the beginning of chapter three, which happens to be the longest chapter in the book. Remember, it's that 66 verse chapter instead of 22. He's describing his own suffering happening in the midst of the broken down city. And it's real suffering. And he feels trapped by God, like God is acting as his enemy even. So it's, it's relentless and he gets even to the point where he's lost hope. He does. But then come those wonderful words, which stand out now so brightly since we've positioned ourselves to watch and listen to the city of Jerusalem in this man for three chapters. I mean, we have walked through the dark so that when you have the weight and hopelessness of the context of this destroyed city, verse 21 feels almost shocking. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, you pull it out of context and think that's, you know, that's great that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. But <laughs> when you think about what this man has seen and lived through, right, his city's destroyed, families are broken up, people who used to lead the nation are wandering around helpless, babies are starving, months and months of trauma for him in this moment to say these words, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Nothing that his eyes see in his present circumstances tell him to say this. So how does he do it? What how what is happening here that he can say these words? Yeah, because what he's doing is counterintuitive to our hearts. It's not something that comes as naturally or easily. It comes from years as a, of us going up and down through suffering and over time, us seeing that even in the midst of life's worst pain and moments, God always shows up and promises to. Mm-hmm. In this moment, when he is completely surrounded by total devastation, he is drawing on an experience with God that he's had in the past when God showed up and he is reminding himself of that. Okay, so I'm buying that hope, but then it almost seems like he forgets what he was talking about. Cause by the time he gets to the end of chapter three, he's back to talking about his eyes flowing like a river of tears. Right. So it's like, he's gone from this moment of hope back to sadness and grief again. Uh-huh. And one commentator, Ian Provan writes about this. And he says, like most sufferers, he swings from one extreme to the other. He complains, he's driven to doubt. 
He immediately expresses hope and affirms that silence and patience are good, exhorting himself and others to prayer, and then falls back within himself, complaining and hoping for revenge on his enemies. He tells us this is, the, the commentator, this is like most sufferers. So my question for you is, is it like most sufferers? Is this what you see in your clients, this sort of swing from hope to grief and back to hope again, back to lament? Absolutely. Yes, this is what I see. And it's also what I see in my own heart. It's kind of like if you diagrammed a cycle of suffering, it would be despair, then lament, then hope, then back to despair, kind of like a circle. You know, I think it helps us to normalize that so we aren't surprised when we or others we love ride that wave. Mm -hmm. So let's talk again for a minute about this punishment or even suffering in general, because so many people get stuck at this point, specifically you know, chapter three, verse 27, which reads, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And you write about that, that yoke of suffering and that it changes people. So like, how is that a good thing? Yeah. So I'm going to rely on people here that are way smarter than me. First one is a, an 18th century commentator by the name of Joseph Benson. Mm -hmm. And this is what he writes about that. He says here, however, the prophet seems to speak chiefly of the yoke of affliction. Many have found it good to bear this yoke in their youth. It has made those humble and serious and spiritually minded who otherwise would have been proud, unruly, and like a bull, unaccustomed to the yoke. Hmm. And I think we forget a lot of times, especially in our day and age, that the goal of our lives is not happiness or finding ourselves or retirement or any of the other things that the world tells us it should be. Right. The goal of our lives is to get, give God glory. And part of how we do that is we're changed more and more to be like him. And that is a painful process. So mm. he's saying here, it's good for us when our suffering is used to change us along the way into the image of Christ, especially when we're young, because it sets this trajectory for us for a lot of years. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, Okay, can we talk about verse 33 for a minute? In the ESV, it reads, For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. In the context in verse 31 and 32, quote, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from the heart. And then the NIV reads, He does not willingly bring affliction. So can you explain the core truth of all these verses? Yeah, because it, it, it can almost feel like someone is forcing him, right? Like, right. He doesn't do it willingly. Well, who's making him do it? <laughs> like, it's not an accident. Right. So uh, maybe a, a better explanation could be he does not afflict as if he had any pleasure in it. Mm, okay. And again, I'm going to rely on a, a, a commentator at 17th century this time. Matthew Poole writes, showing mercy is his proper natural work which flows from himself without any cause in the creature. Judgment is his strange work to which he never proceeds except when provoked and as it were forced from the creature where it flows that he cannot delight in it. So what naturally flows from God to his creatures is mercy mm. and judgment only comes when it's provoked by sin. And when it happens, God doesn't take any delight in it or the application of it. God does not enjoy judging or punishing. It is not his usual posture toward mm -hmm. his creation. And in fact, we even see in this passage a foreshadowing of God's provision for this sin, because as we listen to the narrator, 
we hear one who didn't just deserve punishment like everybody else did, but lived through it anyway. Right. And was showing the way back to God in the midst of it. So can you talk a little bit about that and what that leads you to in your mind? Well, yeah. I mean, this is totally like a foreshadowing of Jesus as the one who entered the pain and the destruction, though he obviously didn't deserve it. Hmm. And like this narrator does in speaking of God's goodness and later in the chapter of trying to get the people and to repent, Mm. he, the narrator, you know, the innocent one who speaks on God and others behalf. And in that way, he is the true Israel, right? Remember, this was supposed to be Israel's job to show the world who God was to bring them to God, but they fail obviously. And it's Uh Jesus who does so, who brings us, shows God so faithfully in his life. Yeah, so Jesus ends up being the true billboard yep. in the end. Right. So any any last thoughts about this chapter? I think just that, you know, when we think about God's anger, we often make it a caricature or mm. something other than it is. And if you think about someone doing something to someone you love, like let's think about someone doing something terrible to one of your children. Right. And if you knew about it because you love your child, and you could do something about it, but instead you just kind of sat by and swept it on the rug or twiddled your thumbs. You didn't do, you, you took no recourse for mm-hmm. what this person did. What kind of love would that be? Mm-hmm. No, you, you would prosecute or punish or put them in jail or whatever you could do because it's your child. Well, right. here in Jerusalem, there are many, many, many children who were abused and cheated and widows who were starving before the destruction of the city because the people of Judah wouldn't pay them fairly and orphans who weren't taken care of. And God says, no, this is not okay. And he doesn't sit idly by while these, the least of these are abused. He says, no, I will not let this go on. And he does it with precision. It's planned and executed with precision, not in some fiery burst of anger, like I often do, but after generations of warning and abuse, this is wrath that serves love. And I think that's so comforting because so often we see all these things go totally awry in our world. Mm -hmm. And we're like, where are you, God? Are Mm -hmm. you going to act? And I feel like this text shows us he is, he is, he has, and he will, you know, and it's just, it's so, that's so helpful. Um, So living in a falling world where we often wonder, okay, what's going to happen? His answer is he does care. And there's a lot of comfort in that. Mm -hmm. So thank you everyone for joining us in our discussion of the first half of Lamentations chapter three. Next time we'll do the rest of chapter three, where we will continue to hear the words and lament of the man. We hope you join us again. Thank you so much for joining us on the At His Feet Studies podcast. As always, it is so fun to hang out with y'all. If you would like to buy one of our studies or see all the different studies we have, you can visit our website at www.athisfeetstudies.com.